rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. I'd like to welcome to the program today the Reverend Chad Jarnigan. Chad is a recognized musician, priest, writer, and speaker. He's the host of a Luminous podcast and the founding rector of Luminous Parish, an Anglican mission right here in Franklin, Tennessee. You grew up in Ohio in Cincinnati, right, Chad? Sure did, yeah. And so rather than me learn, reading all of your accomplishments <laughs> here, I figured we could jump right into the interview today. Um, Chad and I have gotten to know each other, I guess, over the past couple of years. And I've attended uh, the church there at Luminous. And I thought it would be a good way to kick off this podcast, The Rumors of Grace. Uh, you've got an interesting story, one that uh, somewhat parallels mine. But I thought today we could talk a little bit about that. We could also talk about uh, your new book called Learning to Be that's going to be coming out. And when will that book be out? Hopefully by the fall of 2019. So it's going to be a while. But there's okay. a lot of lead time Great. between now and then. And you've given me some excerpts from it, some chapters, mm-hmm. and I, I've, I've read it. I love what I've read so far. But before we jump into that and go into the deep end, give me a little bit about yourself, your background. I know for a fact that you haven't always been a Anglican priest. That wasn't your intention, I think, when you um, in your formative years. Mm-hmm. How long have you been doing that? Uh, for about five years. And I think that it was about a 15-year path toward mm-hmm. that. I didn't know. Initially, I didn't know that that's what it would become. But I'd always been really compelled toward sacramental worship uh, and that kind of formative uh, rhythm, mm. for sure. So tell me, uh, high level, you don't have to get into mm-hmm. a ton of details, but tell me, okay, where did you go? Did you go to college? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I went to Carson Newman College for a couple of years, and then I went to Berkeley. Okay. Um, and that was online, and uh, I was touring a lot. And uh, you were a mus- musician back then. Yeah, yeah, that's my first part of my life. I would call it <laughs> was uh, music, and so I toured a lot, uh, probably about fifteen years, and uh, in and out of college, in and out of school, and ended up uh, going to uh, work towards my MA at Veritas College International, which is a, a really a uh, competency based type of program that helps me do it in the in a cohort setting um and essentially it's uh you know it's seminary uh, mm. towards biblical studies masters mm. and uh it allows me to continue to live life and do everything else that we're doing and continue to do that and it's really really helpful and i've seen that it's it's right when it needs to happen <laughs> so had i done that out of some of the road life i wouldn't have been ready for that so this is kind of set up my next half of my life, which is really a different flavor of ministry for sure. So you're married, you have children? Mm-hmm. Yep. Married for 15 years, going on 16, and three kids, three, eight, and 10, and uh, haven't slept for eight years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, welcome to fatherhood. <laughs> so uh, Anglicanism wasn't your always in your stream of, of, of faith, um, 
talk, walk to me mm-hmm. in your faith walk of, yeah. of where, how you got to where you are today. You know, uh, looking back, it was always on the peripheral. So th- it's it was there, but I didn't know what it was. So my family comes from a background of um, my my mom's side was Catholic for as long as my mother could remember, and they converted to um, Methodism, <laughs> which was evidently a big deal. And, you know, Methodists were planted by the Wesleys, which were Anglican. And so I I had that introduction at a very young age, but we weren't everyday churchgoers in my childhood. Mm. So it was just uh, whenever the family felt like they needed to go or wanted Mm. to go. So it was more than Christmas Eve and, you know, Easter. It was more than that. But I didn't have a lot of framework for that growing up. So I got to hear it from family members that were continuing to be Catholic. And my, my dad's side, my grandmother and grandfather, were actively a part of a missionary-minded uh, church. I don't know what it was. I went a few times during my visits to summer. Mm. All of those things never really uh, helped on any formative level. I, it was just an experience, and I would walk away and just kind of forget about any of that. And, but later on in life, when I started getting serious about it, it was, which was toward college, uh, I, I didn't have a lot of baggage. So I didn't have the, the VBS experience or the youth group experience so much that I, I kind of got a start by myself. And uh, so I went to non-denominational. I went to a, I believe it was a Baptist church for a while. I didn't know that it was. They were secretive. And, uh, <laughs> and then... When I moved to Nashville, I started going to uh, St. Bartholomew's uh, Episcopal Church, mm-hmm. which St. B's, everybody calls it. Uh, <laughs> it's been an incredibly influential church here in town. And that was where I fell in love with just all things liturgical and really had a sense of awe and wonder and just reverence again. Mm-hmm. And so out of that, I kind of went on the road, and during that time of being on the road, I was helping with a youth ministry here in town at another church, a bunch of friends. It was a beautiful season of life. We saw amazing growth and lots of fun mm. things, and we experimented a lot and did a lot of things that I don't think that we had ever heard of anybody doing. And so that was fun. But so out of that experience of coming off the road, I didn't have the opportunity to go back into St. B's on a consistent level. So I was just in a kind of a Baptist light, non-denominational world and was there for a long amount of time. And but underneath all of that, you know, when I got still, when I got quiet and all of the the hype and the decibel levels kind of started to settle I was very hungry and thirsty for really scripture and sacrament and the things of the spirit. Mm. And I didn't know what to do with that because I wasn't, that wasn't a part of the DNA of those environments. Mm. And, you know, we, there was a lot of great things happen in those environments and those things. Uh, lots of people were introduced to the way of Jesus mm. and uh, hopefully were even somewhat discipled toward what it meant to be that. and But what I've seen over the years was very echoing of my own path. And over the last several years, 
the more of those old students that I run into, um, we have the, the very similar conversations. We are, uh, there's, there's been turbulence in their faith. There's mm-hmm. been a, uh, their framework is breaking down and they equate all of that to a church environment or a church experience and haven't really been able to grasp the concept of God being bigger. Mm. That's you know? good. And so that, that Talk to me a little bit about that. Talk to me about, I mean, uh, I know my journey and a lot of people listening, um, you say your framework's been rocked, your, whatever situation, mm-hmm. it seems to be that whether from within or without, something happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and was there a turning point in your life or something that rocked your faith specifically that said, oh, oh you just woke up to uh, something different? Yeah. I, you know, I look back on many things that I couldn't put into words growing up. Um, my family life was a bit more traumatic than I knew it was in the moment. Mm. So I look back and that was incredibly uh, harmful for me. And I didn't really know that in the moment. So my parents both uh, have been combined in, in all of their marriages that they've had uh, outside of one another um, have been married and divorced like 10 times. Wow. So that sounds like a really bad sitcom, right? Mm. And that was my life. I mean, and you know, as a child growing up with a mother and a stepdad that has different last names than you, um, you don't think about that as, a, as an adult as much unless you've been trained and kind of brought to an awareness to how to help your kids transition into blended families and things. But um, that was always weird for me. All of my other friends had the same last names mm-hmm. as their parents, you know. So those those are the types of things that, you know, that's not a seismic moment. It is a continuation of something, you know. Right. And I think when I was 16 years old, um, I had my first experience with death. Mm-hmm. It was close. And it was my grandfather. Mm-hmm. My grandfather and I were very close, and I've been told that I'm very much like him. Mm-hmm. Uh, baseball lover. Um, creation lover, um, just loving God and not really knowing what that all means, but attempting to live a life devoted mm-hmm. and just an ongoing, you know, deconstruction, reconstruction process. And I've heard that that was my grandfather. Mm-hmm. And so when he passed, that was way more seismic than anything that I'd ever experienced. Mm-hmm. And knowing his life of devotion and the reputation that I saw that he had. Those, everyone that I met uh, after his death were saying there, there's, there was no one like this guy. And so I look at that legacy and I think, wow, what is that? Because my father didn't have that kind of legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my dad was one of those guys that was the life of the party. And when he came into the room, he had people laughing within the first five minutes. That's kind of like... He was just uh, that type of force, um, home run hitting guy because he didn't like to run. I mean, it, it's he's like a he was like this Babe Ruth kind of figure for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you know, Babe Ruth's not somebody that you want to imitate. <laughs> right. He was an amazing ball player, but 
kind of a crap human. Right. <laughs> and so that's what's so funny about that is I began began to re review all of that life and talk to my mom the older I got, she, the more details that I got mm-hmm. about his life. And, and I got to, to have a time with him. So I got to know him a when little bit. When did he more. pass, obviously? He did pass um, several years ago. And so there was a lot, when, when death comes, you know, it's that evaluation of you review, you reflect. And I'm contemplative by nature, so I'm going to mm-hmm. be in a headspace. Uh, and then as a five uh, on the Enneagram, I, I'm going to just be in a place of questions, research, and contemplation. And so I, all of that being said, those were the types of things that I didn't know in the moments mm-hmm. were, were making an effect on me. And eventually I can, I now can reflect on that and acknowledge it and feel it mm. and own it and recognize that, you know, being a father myself, that I didn't have to be the same type of father that my dad was. So um, absent, um, selfish, that type of thing. However, when you deal with death, you also review that in the framework and the filter of your own life. Like, how are you living? How are you uh, devoting your time, your energy, your resources? All of those things. And that, uh, man, that, that had an effect on me, I think, going into being a young dad several years ago and going forward I looked at myself looking at the ambitions and a bit of the narcissism that laid in my innermost being. And I began to reevaluate and reassess how I were wanting to go forward right. with my life. Sure. And um, that's where the journey, the intentional journey towards Anglicanism began. And how we wanted to raise our children and the types of legacies that we wanted to try to be intentional with. And so were you, if I remember correctly and correct me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. um, you were working in another church. You were on staff. Were you a minister there? I was. Okay. And so that was a, the Baptist church or it was. Okay. Yeah. As a a worship pastor Mm -hmm. there. And uh, I did that out of uh, probably a little over five years, okay. I think. Um, underneath all of that, it was a wonderful space to experiment. Mm. Um, it was definitely, the, you know, you, you didn't, you would never know it was a Baptist church uh, until you, you know, kind of dig a little mm-hmm. deeper, going to like the partnership class. Then you can kind of, and then you get to that place where you're like, oh, okay, this is what this is. Now, if, you, if you're astute and you know like what it is to, you know, be in a that that type of environment, you would know. Mm-hmm. It, it's there. It's in the air. Um, it's it's uh, from the framework of uh, how many women do you ever see on the stage in leadership? Right. Um, all of those types of things. So, I think that that was a pretty like safe place mm-hmm. to lean into more of where we were heading. You know, and so I have to give a lot of credit and uh, and grace to that. Yeah, I, I was yeah. brought up Baptist as well, mm-hmm. and um, it reminds me of Father Richard Rohr's statement that um, sometimes a conservative box is a really safe box mm. to grow up in. Mm, I get that, <laughs> uh, but you got to break out of that box at some time, at yeah. some point. <laughs> uh, but 
uh, it is a safe box and there's nothing wrong with safe and healthy at times mm-hmm. as long as you can experiment within that that framework mm-hmm. so that that then led you to where you are now and let's jump into the book you're writing yeah learning to be what did the just briefly, what did that grow out of? It probably came from the last decade or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I probably look back on some of my touring experience where I was in Christian environments. I was in a different church or a different setting every night. So it's according to where we were and what we were doing. You know, we could have been around Assemblies of God. We could have been around a Baptist church, non-denomination, Pentecostal, like whatever. And I think... That left me with a bit more, and then I had this like Anglican undercurrent, right? Mm. This this beauty found in the Eucharist, and is this truly the body and blood of Jesus? And and why don't we ever experience that in all these other settings? You know, we have these songs that really kind of set up communion, but we never, really, you know, acknowledged it or really, you know, did it, and received it. And I think when I started putting some framework and skin on this idea, like, wow, this was a book Mm. waiting to happen. And so, you know, a lot of people say, you know, I'm writing a book or one day I'm going to write a book. And that's exactly what I was thinking, but I knew it was going to happen. It wasn't just an ambition. Matter of fact, I didn't have an ambition. I didn't want that to kind of be the case. Uh, but then when I started really unpacking all of that in part, what's on paper, it made it real. Mm-hmm. And so when I started framing it up, putting it out, saying, okay, this chapter goes here, this section goes here, it was just unpacking my life of faith mm-hmm. for probably more than a decade, probably my life. And, and then I started talking with people. And then my favorite thing of started listening Mm. (laughs) and I started paying attention. And as I began to do that more and, you know, finally got tired of talking about myself first, I started hearing things that echoed with who I was, where I had been, or maybe hopeful of where I would eventually be. And so the book framework came from that experience and when I hear people that, whether they're listening to our, you know, the podcast or they're attending the parish or somehow or another, the, you know, this message or the, what I'm saying is on their, in their right. orbits. And I'm just hearing from them and right. it resonates and it's really fueled the need to want to release a book versus just, you know, having to get it out. Right. Uh, now I actually feel like it's a bit of a, there's a point to it besides just, you know, doing something that I know I need to be disciplined about. That's good. I've read through some of it. And I love, I love it. I resonate with it. Um, I'm going to throw some excerpts out and then you, we can riff on that. Mm-hmm. How's that? Yeah. Okay. One of your chapters, you say, I wonder what would happen if we didn't live with such a need of ego, pride, and control. What if we weren't crippled by narcissism? Mm. What's, yeah. what, what's behind that? That's a big what if, right? It's pretty audacious. <laughs> and because What if we weren't broken people? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because if you pull the thread on all of those things, that's exactly what it comes down to. It comes through 
um, this need for more. Mm. And I have been on that pilgrimage, I would call that. And uh, I see a center to all of us. And that center might be ambition. It may be discipline. It may be... um, Control. Control, (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah. It it may be uh, talent of some sort that uh, some of the best writers, whether it's authors of books or uh, songwriters I have ever (laughs) been around, are consumed by their call or by their gifts or even platform uh, on an, to an unhealthy state. And I, you just have to think when you're around people that aren't consumed by their art form mm. or by their ambition. And that could be investments. You know, it could be, you know, insurance. Everything's a sales pitch. Like it, that could be part of that. It doesn't have to be um, art or uh, authors or anything like that. Uh, but when you get that place where someone is actually wanting to hear from you, like when they want to spend time with you with no kind of uh, other you know, motive. Right. They truly just want to be with you mm-hmm. on a friendship level or whatever that is. And there, there's just something beautiful about that. Mm. And I've found that the most saintly people are those types of people that don't have to be heard first. Mm. Uh, you know, we, we were just kind of talking about the passage of Mark because we've been studying that in the lectionary. You have this sense of service that we all know that Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And we're supposed to do the same. And he's challenging James and John, right, to do this thing. And But, but really, uh, what does that look like? And it's an embodiment of philosophy. So that's what I would come to is that what if we had an embodiment of philosophy that Jesus truly was teaching us another way Mm. versus the way of our society or even our church? Our churches do that. Mm. You know, you need to be ambitious and you should need to do that and you should lead that class and you should serve here. And it's all about the more doing Right. And less being, because there's not margin to be. Right. And I think that that's where that's at the heart of that. Yeah, excerpt. that's good. Yeah, we could probably talk all day about that. <laughs> but um, another another excerpt I love. This one's a little long, but but bear with me. I think it's worth worth talking about. It is unfortunate to think that the modern church felt as though crafting an environment that feels more like theater or arena would be the answer to deformation, ill formation, and spiritual malnutrition when followers of Christ as well as the curious were simply in need of peace and forgiveness, not more dogma and doctrine. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what... What was behind that? I, I there's a lot in there that we can talk about. Certainly, I, but but talk to me about that. This probably comes from personal experience. That was me being in the rooms, making the decisions, helping make the decisions, helping mm-hmm. whiteboard how crafty we could be or how creative we could be, how innovative uh, 
that the people that are sitting in our seats needed a more robust experience that would keep and hold their attention versus just simply bring the word and an opportunity to respond to the word and maybe come to a table. Mm. And I, and then, which is, you know, it, that's the Anglican thing coming mm-hmm. out. And whether, and I think a lot of people believe that would never call themselves Anglican, but they are Eucharistic in nature. They're sacramental in value. And that's probably the heartbeat of that. And what I would say, many, many friends that acknowledge the need for maybe more reverence in their worship uh, and less branding, um, I would you know, I would encourage them to continue to pull the thread on that mm-hmm. because it's not enough to acknowledge that we are somewhat malnourished, but the spiritual formation that we all believe that we're having is is sometimes a faux formation. It's a faux formation that that could eventually leave us misinformed mm-hmm. uh, and ill-formed. And, and God forbid, um, deformed. Mm. And that's where, you know, theology, a lot of people don't think is very important, but that's where deformation comes from is really jacked up theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that plays out on a practical level if you're more excited about seeing the celebrity right. pastor speak than, um, you know, maybe just coming to the table and receiving yeah, I, I sometimes um, have been at, at churches where um, people take out their iPhones and they take pictures of mm-hmm. the amazing worship. Uh, whoever's the celebrity leading worship, the, the lights and the smoke, and it just wows them so much that they have to, you know, take a selfie with that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a sad state in my mind of where we've come to say, well, this is a healthy church experience. Let me throw this out at you and see what you think about this. Mm-hmm. Um, because I resonate with this. You know, first let me say, the thing that I, I have been wrestling with as of late is that when you look at uh, the true word, which, is G- which I believe is Jesus, you know, the scripture says Jesus is the word made manifest, yeah. not the Bible. Yes. The Bible yes. is important, but the he living the word is Jesus. He's the embodiment of, the, of everything. Yeah. So as I look at him and I read his words, um, the only thing that he really said about organized church was, where two or three gathered, there I am. Mm-hmm. That's about it. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, and he also said, Peter, you know, you're the rock, and on this rock I'll build my church. So mm-hmm. that's a whole controversial what did he really mean by that i don't think we really know yeah but that's it so how did we go from there to the arena rock show um and us all sitting in chairs watching one man give a a fabulous speech right um i obviously that's a western invention absolutely that has nothing to do with scripture has nothing to do with jesus um now, I'm not saying that it's all bad, mm. uh, but where I'm going with it is what I wanted to ask you is, uh, 
as I have sit, I've sat and grown up and watched people on Sunday mornings and having these worship experiences, is there any value in emotional release for people once mm. a week? Mm. Um, <laughs> I hear people say, I just love to go. It meets, feeds my soul. I love to worship. And I get that. Depending, you know, you mentioned the Enneagram, mm-hmm. where we are and who we are as individuals and our personalities. Some people really get a lot out of that. Other people don't. Depending on your introvert or your extrovert, it can make you very feel very awkward on sure. those environments. Sure. And for some people, they're, you know, um, is there any value just from a psychological and a, you know, people experiencing, they don't get to have emotional releases most of the week, especially in where we are in our society, yeah. healthy emotional releases. Um, is there some value in that? Because I don't want to throw the baby mm. out with the bathwater and yeah. say, well, it's all bunk because I don't think it is. Yeah. What, 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 are you, what are your thoughts on that? Man, that's, that's a great question. I think that many people are pondering mm-hmm. and they may not be able to put it in those, be able to articulate what it is, but even, you know, I, I know a lot of liturgical folks and people that are in, you know, the, the Anglican world that are incredibly passionate about their faith. Mm-hmm. And when they, when they have a song that they can sing to, they sing it at the top of their lungs, hands high, mm-hmm. raised. And that's the funniest thing. When I went to my first Anglican uh, clergy retreat, uh, I didn't know what I was walking into. So, you know, I, was just, I was looking around the room saying, Okay, a third of these guys are around my age or younger. Everybody else is like not even close. You know, they're just older guys and, and women. And then as soon as the first chord was struck, I have never been in an environment that was that mm. uh, charged. It was loud. Uh, it wasn't amplified from a musical standpoint. Like the voices in the room mm. were loud. So it took that experience of like worship high to a different place. Mm. Like, so it moved the, the worship leader, celebrity, whatever you want to call that, in the production aspect of it. And it took that away and it made the, the people's voices mm. the center point. And that to me is like the embodiment of Anglican worship in contrast to what we were right. just talking about. Sure. So now saying that, um, I sense that when people allow themselves to have an emotional response, it comes from a place of authenticity, mm. mostly. Mm-hmm. Or it comes from a place that they've had an incredibly traumatic week mm-hmm. or an experience. Or they have parents that feel like they've failed as parents um, to their children. And, they, but, and so they're pouring themselves out to a God that they believe hears them and inhabits their praise. You see that happen from a place of like true raw guts and you can't help but say that is just good, right? Mm. Um, That can't be labeled as emotionalism. That is an authentic person devoted to trying to express themselves out of a need, you know, maybe out of a broken place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've talked about this personally, how we have way more people suffering within the church Mm -hmm. than we would ever give it 
space or time right. for it because we don't know what to do with that. Right. In the modern setting, we don't even know how to equate suffering into our faith. Right. We think that you know someone critiquing or pushing against something that we think our faith should be entitled to uh, in a cultural society, we think that that is suffering. Mm. And the bigger picture is that we need to look around the world to see our brothers and sisters and their context mm. because a Christian in Syria suffers. Right. You right. know, a, a, uh, a Coptic in Egypt mm. suffers. This is happening all around the world. That's suffering. But it doesn't diminish a single mother or a single parent trying to figure out a way to pay their bills and a way to get their kids to all the practices and to all the school functions and much less have a place where they can go to church and, right. and kind of play. All of those things are con- contextual suffering. Mm. And that leads us to a beautiful, authentic response. Now, and if I were to, and I would lead with all of that because I think that that's more of the truest form of our emotional release yes. and response. But I would say the last is definitely the least of, uh, and probably the most frustrating, <laughs> but it's the least of substance is when we've created a genre that means if the, all the songs that are picked that day are like on the radio and you all know it and everybody just sings, they don't even have to look at the screen because they have all the songs memorized. Um, if you're that much into it, that's actually, you're more of a fan right. of an experience, right. not releasing yourself out of... Uh, a, a devoted expression, mm. if that makes sense. Right. And I'll debate people on that. There's not many things that I would care to debate or spend time on, but that's one of those conversations that I'm all about because I've been on that stage and I've been in the lights. I've you know, had a trouble breathing out of the haze. Mm. <laughs> and I've, I, I get that. I understand right. what it's like to try to get people to hold hands and jump at your beat. You right, know? right, right, right. I get it. And uh, there, but in the settling of all of that and in the evaporation of the haze, when it comes down to it, that has to be evaluated. And when it's found lacking, or wanty, we should figure out a way forward. You know, one of the things that I have been questioning and have asked a few people, and you and I discussed this, I think, is that many times in those environments, and I think this is endemic of um, of, of more... Uh, Protestant evangelical Western churches than I think Eastern Orthodox and even Catholic has has done a really good job on this is like you mentioned earlier is we when I say we I'm talking a, a more American Western evangelical church has never really developed a really good theology of suffering mm. uh, as a matter of fact I think mm-hmm. have been repelled against it absolutely um it's almost something that you get over something that you're rescued from um jesus is the answer to life's problems um the theology actually doesn't give space for it Mm -hmm. and so the worship experience is this 
emotional high and experience and release that we don't get the rest of the week. But rarely, and I'm say I'm not judging all churches, but rarely do you have songs of lament, mm. songs of suffering, songs of pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, when you, and the reason I bring this up is because I've been reading through the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Um, you know, how do you reconcile what Jesus was saying with a Sunday <clears throat> with a Sunday morning? <laughs> worship worship experience. Right. Yeah. They don't seem to line up. And I'm not saying there's not a place for it. And I'm not saying that there is mm-hmm. good things and um, hopeful things and, and dwelling on the good and the lovely. Mm-hmm. And yet Jesus seemed to keep going on the downs down and deeper into the basement while everyone else continues to keep going up and ascending. Mm. He keeps descending. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we integrate that? Yeah. And I, like I said, I think a lot of the Eastern churches have done a good job. Mm-hmm. But uh, talk to me a little bit about that. Uh, I've seen lots of opportunities within the liturgical calendar. Like if anybody's listening to this that that doesn't come from a uh, you know a liturgical background, we we have a, a rhythm that we adhere to. You know, our lectionary. And how we practice is a three-year cycle. And the seasons begin with Advent, go to Epiphany, Christmas, obviously, Epiphany, and, and so forth. And those seasons develop rhythms and patterns for us. So Lent, as a lot of people, even evangelicals, are a bit more familiar mm-hmm. with Lent, even though they may make fun of it. Um, but it's a... It's a rhythm. It, it's a, an intentional permission to lament, mm. uh, to suffer with, mm. uh, to connect to one another as well as our private devotion. And one of the things you see in those rhythms is that we're more connected and communal in kind of contrast to a typical evangelical setting that says that it's more about your individualism mm. uh, than it is about your community or your community. That's true. That's good. And when we walk life together, we can see patterns of want and need. We see that in one another, and we can suffer with those. I mean, I, I went through uh, my second cousin, uh, is 26 years old, and just died last week. And I watched as I went to the funeral and it was a part of that celebration that you just get the sense that people rise together when there is a need. And if you live in isolation and your vacuum uh, and never allow people to see your need, which I understand is way more, it feels safer to do that because you don't want to put anybody out. Uh, but you also don't want people knowing your stuff. I get that. But man, we could learn a lot from our um, from the Jewish heritage of how they live and process mm. and uh, and mourn together. Shiva. And so mm-hmm. it yes, and and so you get that sense of the scriptures come alive when you mourn with those who mourn, mm. and then you celebrate with those who celebrate. Right, like you can't do that unless you are known, mm. and I think that there's something to be said for that. That's I'm continuing to find, you know, these 
these beautiful spaces and margin within this rhythm that that we adhere to, like in our seasons. Right, right. And so that really helps. And, yeah. and I think, look at it, for example. So you come in on a Sunday morning to a church that just does like the normal evangelical thing, and there could have been a mass shooting or they could have been some kind of tragic social, cultural right. significance uh, that week before. But the songs are already picked, and you're not going to change it. Right. And you start from the get-go with this beat that just gets people coming in, and you're talking over the first chords. Hey, church, glad you're here. Get your coffee. Come on in. Mm-hmm. And we start our posture in this celebratory kind of manner. But all of us know that have uh, that have had life happen at all. Right. If you just work Monday through Friday and you put in like 60 hours that week or whatever, and your first day is like Saturday and you get to exhale a little bit and you're devoted enough to come to church on Sunday, your second day off, and you come, you're not necessarily at a place where you're ready to pump your fist in the air and celebrate you, especially if you're heavy from, you know, having something happen that week. So we've, we've got to figure out a way of being more in tuned, which I would call attunement, which is a therapeutic term that you would have to be aware of your environment. And I think that that provides places um, to lament it provides places to just come in and sing a song that maybe, like my friend Sandra has written, like, Lord, have mercy. Mm. And, and, and you're pleading this, That's good. this psalm, that lament psalm, because majority of the psalms are laments. But the church doesn't know that because we don't acknowledge it well, right. at least in the West. And when you kind of allow yourself to go there, it's incredibly ministry like you are ministered to out of that lament because you're asking there's already a need there we all know it we're just either going to ignore it or we're going to acknowledge it that's good and i think that's where it comes down to when we have those spaces that leads to the next quote uh i thought was really good and it said you write the church should attempt to preserve language that elevates the mind mm. out of the cluttered and noisy minutia of society. Um, I think that's a fascinating sentence. How how do we how do you do that uh, when so much of what the church says and has said and the Christianese that exist mm. is totally irrelevant to most people? Uh, how, how does the church preserve language that elevates the mind uh, out of the cluttered and noisy minutia of society? Yeah, it's it's more helpful to actually acknowledge that there is a lacking mm-hmm. or there's intention there, but it, it's it's not incredibly helpful to to just bark about the fact that that's a reality. It's now what we what will we do with it? And I think in I found a. There's lots of settings like this that that elevate reason, mm. that elevate discourse, conversation, uh, a, a, an ongoing learning. I think we, when we stop reading and we stop listening and we stop paying attention, 
that is the beginning of the end of whatever circle that is. And if there's a way for us to, you know, I, of course, have the Book of Common Prayer at our disposal, which fact is everybody does if they would would like a copy. It's on Amazon, I'm sure. And you you can open this up and begin to see whether it's the the version from the 20s or the version from the 70s. Uh, there are beautiful pieces of literature, poetry, and formative language there that bring us to a different state of mind that eventually bring our heart in tune and in line with what God is doing in our life already or in our community, in our city, in our countries, in our regions. Mm. And if we pay attention to that, it's there. So I think that instead of recreating like the wheel mm-hmm. and making all new ways of approaching uh, worship environments or whatever, those settings, I, I think that it's actually very important for us to preserve much of where we've come from and maybe reform that mm. from there, you know, uh, versus just recreating from scratch, you know, something that we think that, oh, uh, we've said this word for so long, now we need to say something different. I will say folks like uh, Rob Bell have a gift in articulating the gospel truth of something in a way that it sounds like we've never heard it before. Exactly. And many people have those gifts, but mm-hmm. he's just one that stands out with me. And I, I think the old book that I'm talking about specifically uh, was Velvet Elvis. Mm-hmm. That's one of those things that I remember reading this going, there is nothing new in here. It's the way, it's the way in exactly. which he says it. Uh, some friends of ours that, that come to the church that are incredibly creative and artistic, and they, they've come from more of a free-form background of like they don't it's it's liturgical but not really but they love this you know way forward that we found with liturgy uh, however there's some of the prayers uh, the collects that we pray on occasion that I've talked with some of these folks about they're like yeah that language like it it's so different it's unique mm. and partly I love it and then partly it irritates me. Right. Right. And I think part of that irritation may be because it's just not the way we speak. Exactly. Day to day. Right. right. And some of that's okay. But some of that, I understand the accessibility and the relevance side of it. But I would say my, my term in that is that reverence is the heart mm. of some of this language. Mm. And we would do really well to understand that relevance and reverence aren't really or shouldn't be at odds with one another. Mm, so That's good. Yeah. What I keep hearing you saying as you talk, and it's something that I've been, been really contemplating over the last year or so, is that um, you're talk, you keep talking about rhythms and practices. Mm. And uh, I think it was uh, Aaron Nequist in his book, The Divine Current. Mm-hmm. He talks about this. One of the things he says, and it, it, seem, it would seem obvious, but it just hit me, is, um, I don't know, it was another author said, 
you know, when the Reformation happened, um, the church got a divorce. Mm-hmm. And in that divorce, um, the Protestants, the, the Catholic Church got the traditions, they got the history, um, they got the saints, mm-hmm. um, they got the early church fathers, mm-hmm. and all we got as Protestants was the Bible. <laughs> and so that has become our, our Pope, right? <laughs> and we don't, and so therefore, I think what has happened, and I'm leading back around to my original comment here, is that when it comes to rhythms and practices, um, it's almost like, as Protestants, we said, we don't want that. That's dead religion. We don't want any of that stuff. Yeah. And what what Aaron says in his book is that the problem is you don't, transformation never comes from knowledge. Mm. And so I spent many years of my life studying scripture, going to Bible college. And the reality is I thought I was doing my spiritual duty by learning the Bible. Mm. Yeah. And if I would just get more knowledge and learn more, that it would transform me. Because, of course, the Bible says that, you know, God's word never, never returns void. Mm-hmm. And yet, we don't do that with any other area of our life. Mm-hmm. You know, like he says, if you're training for a triathlon, you can go to triathlon studies every day and know how to do a triathlon and study all the greats of triathlon and study here's what you do and you don't do. But if you don't get out and practice you're never going to compete. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's the exact same way in our spiritual life. If there are no regular rhythms or practices, um, sitting at home or going to a Bible study never transformed a life. Right. Um, but it's the reason that Jesus didn't sit with his disciples, mm-hmm. you know, once a week in the synagogue and just teach them. He'd live with them. Mm-hmm. He said, come follow me, leave your mother and father and they went on and had an adventure for three years, three and a half years. Mm-hmm. And yet they still weren't getting it, but that's what finally clicked with them. And so I hear what you're, what you're saying is um, rhythms, practices. Um, how, do, how do we make that transition uh, into that? And I know that's a big question. Um, yeah. But, but for somebody who wasn't brought up in that, Mm-hmm. If someone's like liturgy and sacraments and Eucharist, that all sounds very Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not my thing. And yet I'm starting to realize I don't have any rhythms or practices in my life. Yeah. And you don't want to make that legalistic. Of course And yet yeah. how, how does someone step into that? How do, how, what would be some first steps? Yeah, some first steps, I believe, are... I believe in postures. All of this is an intentional living. Mm. So to, you know, if you can, you can look at it from any perspective, like you were talking about uh, a triathlon or running, like you, you have to do the steps in which to be ready for that. You're not going to go even run a 5k tomorrow if you haven't ran for the last year. Right. Yeah. That I wouldn't advise you to do that. Um, but it's the same way. You're not going to try out for a major league baseball team if you've never played baseball. So it's what, okay, what is that first thing? Like, what is that? And we all have rhythms. We have habits, patterns, um, routines that we have to do to maybe even get out the door in the mornings, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Many people listen to podcasts 
on their way and their commutes because that's the only time they have to do that. And they would rather do that than um, listen to, you know, somebody on the radio about something. So, yeah, you find whatever your rhythm is. And maybe if you have 30 minutes in your car, maybe the rhythm is finding uh, a podcast that you want to listen to that is spiritually formative Mm. for you, right? I'm not telling you like the first step of what it needs to be for you, but I know that there are, there's an abundance of resources and opportunities there. But if you have 30 minutes a day, and maybe that's 15 minutes in the morning, 15 in the afternoon or evening, like find something to do during that time, you know? So if then it becomes a habit. Yeah, yeah. And if it's life-giving and soul-feeding, it's tending to your soul, you're going to want, you're looking forward to it, mm-hmm. right? And I know how difficult it is to have those types of spaces when you have a full docket of duties mm-hmm. and, and responsibilities and jobs. And I think that there is a, a posture of listening that happens in prayer and meditation, and if that's sitting in silence mm. for five minutes, it, 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 well, the best time that you can find five minutes of silence. Phone off, everything like, off. Phone <laughs> off, everything off, yeah. The radio off, no no music, no podcast, eh, nothing. Just sit in silence. And because of that, and that's what prayer actually wasn't meant to be communication and action the entire time. We hear, you know, First Thessalonians talk about pray without ceasing. Mm-hmm. That... We have taken that to mean never shutting up. <laughs> and the fact is silence and stillness can be the first step for, uh, you know, a rhythm. Yes. And it may be something that you're thirsty for and you don't even know it until you get it. And a lot of people don't know how to sit in silence because it's so awkward. They're afraid of what they may hear in that silence. Mm. Are they a thought that might come to their mind? And I understand that tension, but when you begin to develop that rhythm, it is life-giving and right. soul-tending. Mm. Now, if you are in, I would, we could spend a whole podcast talking about Lectio Divina, but if you talk about this divine reading, you might take one passage of Scripture, mm-hmm. just a verse, and just pray that and just read it over mm-hmm. and over and over again and allow the Spirit to attune you to what the Spirit wants you to hear right. or center in on. And that are those, those are two easy kind of steps to That's begin a, a pattern and a rhythm. And there's so many more from there. But yeah. I would find, like, I think that it's very helpful to have a church environment, if that's part of what you're doing already, have the right church environment right. that enables those types of spaces. Right. And if you feel like you have that in the way you exist now, great. Acknowledge it intentionally and lean into it more. And if you don't, um, you probably will eventually develop a discontent Mm. um, that longs for rhythmic. uh, It may be liturgical. It may be those patterns. It may Mm. not be. And right now, there is a, a many a choice out there. You can have one that's like liturgy light that's just a couple clicks up on the dial that <laughs> dials it up. You still do right. modern music, right? but yet you stand for the word 
and uh, you may have communion once a month. And then you keep clicking those up and you're going to find environments that have, you know, communion every week, even though it might be off to the side. Right. And then you just go up from there. And yeah. those things are incredibly formative. That's the whole reason why we do the rhythms and the patterns that we do. Oh, absolutely. So that it can refine and and calibrate us. And when I was younger, I felt like I rebelled against that because there is a... Um, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. You know, and I think that's part of growth and wisdom um, of saying, I don't want to get into rote, yep. religious, yeah. quote, religious things. And yet uh, you find yourself saying there's real grace in here and there's oh, real man. there's real healing and there's real transform. That's where the transformation takes yes. place. Yeah. I think that leads us, to, I think, to my last quote. And we'll kind of wrap up with this, but. I think we can spend a few more minutes. You write, maybe the question shouldn't be, if I die, will I go to heaven? But while I'm alive, will I bring heaven to earth? Um, that's, a, that's a heavy statement. I know that's not original. However, it's a concept that really is the crux of, um, you know, where are we going to experience this thing we call faith? Mm. Uh, is it uh, an escape hatch to the next world? Yeah. Uh, and if it is, does that really transform our lives while we're here? Yeah. And if it doesn't, then what's the purpose? Um, mm. If if God is that um, <laughs> that being in the sky that must be appeased with the death of His own Son, so that we can make it there, um, is that what faith is about? Um, I think you and I would agree it's not. But what does it mean to bring heaven to earth? What does that really mean? Yeah. How, how does that unpack that for me? It has to be uh, an embodiment. Mm. It has to be something that we that we breathe and that we exhale. It has to be a, a way of life. And when we allow it to be diminished to... Um, partisanship and politics and those types of things, that is, uh, I, I don't, it becomes disgusting. Mm-hmm. And no wonder there uh, is a tendency to be repulsed by Christians because there's no Christ in their Christianity. Mm. And that, I believe, is the anti Christ. Right. So we have this idea of the devil being our, you know, the 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 force that we're right. battling on a daily basis. The Darth basis. Vader. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so we project that and everything onto that. But anything that, even if it helps to reframe that and say that anything that is anti-Christ and non-Christ centric is the, is the enemy. Mm. You know? And we don't live with that type of embodiment, I think. I think it's easier for us to to draw lines and say, this is good, this is evil. And then we start projecting our image of what is good and evil. And that can be our own bias Mm. or our own baggage or our own whatever. When you meet someone and have an interaction with someone, it could be a barista 
or it could be someone that is helping you through the grocery line, which I realize that I haven't had someone help me with groceries in years because <laughs> I do that self-checkout. And it's like one less way to be connected to another human. And I find that in within the church, there's these opportunities of disconnect, it, but it, we're forced to interact and, and allow heaven to be, to brush up against heaven when we maybe come to the table or we, we are experiencing something together in mm. that way. And when heaven comes to earth, which, um, you know, heaven has come to earth, and now we are the embodiment of this colonialization, right, of, right. of heaven on earth. What do we do with that? And then it definitely means that we live, the, you mentioned the Beatitudes earlier, and I, I am incredibly fond of this countercultural idea of what it means to embody the spirit of Christ. Right. And that, yeah, the least of these, the, the marginalized, the oppressed, being giving a voice for those who don't have a voice, um, using our privilege to help one that is uh, on the opposite part of that scope. Someone that has been told that their voice doesn't matter for so long. Mm. To give voice to those who don't have a voice is to be the kingdom mm. of heaven That's here good. on earth. Uh, his will be done. And that is a part of what's happening today in, in many circles. We probably don't give it the that name or that feel as much, but I, we continue to lean into that. Don't you think, Chad, that when you start to rethink your 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 role and what it means to experience the kingdom of God here on earth, um, and take seriously when Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is within you, the kingdom mm-hmm. of God is within you. Yeah. That all of a sudden you start looking at things through new glasses, your perspective change, and you realize the things that were everyday mundane things become, dare I say, a spiritual reality to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's ironic that people who call themselves religious are not walking and experiencing that. Yeah. So you see God yeah. renewing things and you see him doing really beautiful, mighty things. And you begin to see him take him for what Jesus, when Jesus said, behold, I'm renewing all things. Mm-hmm. You start to see that versus an attitude of the word the world is getting worse and uh, it used to be great and if we don't save this world it's going to hell in a handbasket that's that actually is an anti-christian worldview um and that uh tension Mm -hmm. that we experience in that is a really can be a lonely place for many of us yeah certainly yeah absolutely I think we've seen too many examples that have affected us in that capacity. And we're all searching for a positive example of what does that look like going forward. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I still come back to this idea that's like, a, I think that as Ronald Rollheiser said, that uh, Christianity is never something that you're meant to do alone. Mm. And that is, that is something that we bought into a lie 
of that it's about so much of our individualism. And, and I, I write a lot about that in the book, and that's obviously where, where a lot of this is coming from. But it's that it's that concept of if we belong to one another and and are known and allowing ourselves to, to be known and, and know others, that we, we just all of a sudden begin to reveal, the kingdom is revealed because it is within us and mm. we start acknowledging that with one another and we figure out ways of graciously interacting with one another mm. differently. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we, we mentioned how when we are set apart, mm. we that is a part of what it means to be holy. And that's not very popular to talk about today because right. we're like, oh, well, I'm, I'm never going to be holy, so why even try? <laughs> and I get that, you know, we're not saying holiness is not deity. Right. <laughs> We confuse or it's that. not right living all the time. It's not right, yeah. And so that to be different, peculiar, that leads to being set apart intentionally is to be known mm. as someone who lives differently. And when that happens, that's compelling. It's not repulsive. Right. Um, partisanship is repulsive. Right. Like that. That's the type of thing that we've that we bought into. That you're either red or blue especially we're leading up to like another midterm election and things is that's what the society has done. And it's amplified our divides versus allowing the, uh, our unity mm. to kind of be felt. And mm. the church can be the first most voice of unity, or it can be one that is leading to divide. Mm. And if it's leading to division, I'm sorry, but that is antichrist. And we do why, that why in do the you name. Th- why do you think that is? I have my own idea. Oh, man. But why yeah. do you think that we have to be right, that we that things are either black or white, good or bad, right or left, mm-hmm. Republican, Democrat, mm-hmm. Christian, non-Christian? Why do you think we live in those spaces? I think that it's just easier. I think it's lazy. <laughs> it it We would rather be able to say, this is my way, and it's right, you're wrong, because it's different. And, you know, you have to have that concept of of fear lying underneath the surface mm. instead of grace. Mm. You know, it, it, what's interesting, and this doesn't sound very evangelical, maybe that's part of my my intention that, that I'm not so sure that I am, um, but there is a, a lessening grip on what I feel like I have to do in performing for others to believe that I'm a follower of Jesus. Mm. Uh, I think that when I live in a way that embodies the gospel, it's going to be different than right. what my culture around me sees. That's good. I don't always do that, but when I when I do I'm like, well, maybe, maybe it's just that the, we, the church has even constructed this other idea that's not even, that actually could be anti-Jesus. And uh, it, fear, anything that preys on fear is evil. Mm. So we see that in campaign ads, left mm. and right, you know. Right. Uh, and both sides do it, you know. It's, it's not exclusive. But when we prey on fear, that is not the throne of grace, the throne of grace that we're supposed to approach with confidence and boldness is one of grace. Right. Not of fear, not of suspicion, 
And we, what we fear is something that we don't really get. We don't understand it. So we fear someone who might be different than us because we don't understand it. We fear that our neighborhood is, you know, turning south because a certain type of person moved into the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. We fear them. Instead of taking them uh, a gift and getting to know them, mm-hmm. we would rather just make sure they're not putting bombs in our uh, mailboxes. <laughs> and uh, that is a ridiculous way of living. It sounds and smells nothing of Jesus. Yeah, I, I think another way of saying exactly what you've just said is we, as human beings, no matter where you are in the face of this earth, we are addicted to and gravitate towards certainty. Mm-hmm. And, and I, think, I think, and yeah. control. Yeah. Because I think when you're addicted to saying, I have to have absolutes, yeah, absolutes about my life, my family, my God, my faith. Mm. And as long as I can have those absolutes, then I am safe. And that then leads to, I'm going to gravitate to other people who share those same absolutes. Yeah. And then, then we're going to have form a tribe. We're going to let other people in and out of our tribe who'd have those absolutes. If you if you veer off of those absolutes, whatever they may be, if you're a Democrat, if you're a Republican, if you're a liberal, if you're a conservative, if you're a fundamentalist, um, then you're not in our tribe. And then it continues that downward spiral. Um, but I think coming full circle and maybe wrapping this up is to be free of certainty mm-hmm. Is where faith starts, I believe. I think that's <laughs> yes. embracing mystery and be willing to say, yeah. I don't know what God is or what he's lo- what he looks like or what he is, mm-hmm. but I know he loves me. Right. And I know that he is a being that exists that will have my best interest in heart. And mm-hmm. what I know from the Holy Scriptures and traditions is that he will always do what's loving and kind because... If I know anything about Jesus, mm. he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So it's funny how mm. we know we're willing to see what Jesus is like, but we're, we we have a hard time saying, well, God is just like Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's a hard, that's hard to say yeah, and hard to think about. We know that Jesus, what he's like, but Jesus, he said, we're one. Mm-hmm. If you've seen me, you've seen him. Everything that Jesus was like is exactly how God is like. Yeah, and so um, that that need for certainty, the need for knowing, the need for having to be right, when those are let go, and you say, "I'm going to fall into the mystery," I'm going to fall into the unknowing, um, then you're able to walk in what 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 you're talking That's about, well in that loving, and yeah. that but. It's hard to do when certainly is when yeah. when you're still wrapped up in that. It is, and we all are to some degree. Yeah, totally. I think many of us have this idea of uh, God, um, you know, that's a, a misdirected, misformed, ill-informed um, idea. What's funny to me is you think you know uh, Christmas is coming up, and we've got this idea of maybe 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 God's like the the like the dad in Christmas story that you know Ralphie gets in trouble and you know 
the wrath of his dad coming home from work and he has to talk with his dad. I mean, he's he's dreading it, laying in his bed, crying. It's like, my life's done. I'm going to be pulverized. But yet, like that same dad is the one who gives him that BB gun that he's been wanting and asking for and the whole movie's about. And because he had one, right? So he wants to see, he delights in his, in his son. And we don't see the delight so much as we see that vengeance, that vengeance, right. that, that, which is like, I've heard people say, God is too, like, he's this, this God of vengeance. I was like, to who? Who's God need to be vengeful for? Or two. So I think that that's incredibly, you know, like freeing when we see that it's not a wrathful leading. Um, we have this embodiment of uh, of all sorts of misunderstandings and ill-informed um, or deformed uh, spiritual formation, and uh, that that is just something I pray that God give us this gracious uh, approach again. Mm-hmm. And that would uh, soften us from the inside out, and I think when we do that, our image of God is, uh, you know, Brendan Manning, mm-hmm. man, like he made the statement of healing our image of God heals the image of ourselves. Mm. That should be our hope. Yes, right. Yeah, because really. Ultimately, our view of God says more about us than it does about God. Exactly. And healing our image of God does bring healing and yeah. maybe mirrors the healing in our own life. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for your time. This has Absolutely. been wonderful. This is great. Learning to be coming out in 2019 at some point. Yep. Um, so people can watch for that. If people want to get in touch with you, what are some ways they can do that? You can find me at chadjarnigan.com is probably just my site where I have most things there. You can hit me up at, uh, at Chad Jarnigan on all the socials, I think, and Instagram and Twitter and all that. So And spell your last name. J-A-R-N-A-G-I-N. Awesome. Yeah. This has been great. Thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. <laughs>